Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, September 20th, 2010. Oh, man. I I feel like I'm finally recovered from my traveling. Oh, what I heard, what I saw. Still processing it, though. Looking forward to being able to play sound bites for you in the future when the uh, conference coordinators post the audio. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically to help you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Oh, what crazy fun days we live in when people in the church are just making stuff up about God and preaching it from the pulpits as if it's Christian doctrine. Uh, forget the fact that we have a book. I mean, apparently there's a bazillion different ways to uh, to mangle the uh, Bible, and uh, people are not really all that uh, hip to, uh, you know, spending some time actually you know, re- preaching it correctly. In fact, I'm convinced that uh, more people in Christianity would be agreeing with each other rather than disagreeing with each other if they would just apply basic, basic hermeneutical principles, correct hermeneutical principles uh, to the Scripture. And, uh, of course, which you probably don't you know realize but uh, I'll divulge, is that I'm already beginning to make references to the sermon that we're going to be reviewing today. Um, last week, I was at a conference uh, hosted by uh, Perry Noble's church, New Spring, in Anderson, South Carolina. And I got to tell you, I just was... I, I mentioned the fact... I mentioned this last week. It was it was mostly a train wreck with a couple of good highlights. But the, the bad... Uh, the the lowlights were really 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 bad and what i'm seeing in uh, the seeker driven movement is the same kind of bad hermeneutics and theological speculation that i get from theological liberals it's really really awful to watch and um you know one of the things that i think that the church has lost sight of is is that if you're going to talk about christian leadership if you're going to talk about church leadership. You're going to talk about men who are called to positions and offices of leadership within Christ's church, that one of the primary ways in which leadership is important and must be modeled is in the correct handling of God's Word. And, uh, you know, now let, let me kind of uh, 
weave my way through my my thoughts here is that uh, one of the reasons why I attend conferences and not just read books from people is is that some theology is taught, some of it is caught. And uh, we human beings, we learn both from books as well as how things are reinforced and taught within a cultural context. And what I mean by that is, is that in every, in every organization that we're a part of, there's a culture. And uh, you know, this is you know, I'm kind of doing some organizational theory work here. Uh, but my uh, my master, my first master's degree is in business administration, and uh, w- one of the things that we spend time on is organizational theory and concepts and things like that, um, and and culture theory as it pertains to unique organizations. So, for instance, if if I were to go to work for let's say Walmart, okay, um, Walmart has a particular culture. And there's particular values within the culture of Walmart that they emphasize and certain values that they de-emphasize. And what's interesting is, is that in a culture, what happens is, is that people police themselves in, in this sense. So let, let's say that, uh, that uh, you, uh, you, you go – well, let me, let me switch companies here. Uh, Walmart has a culture. Disney has a culture now. Ironically, I've worked for both. Okay, uh, it's not ironic. I mean, just I, I've in 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 my lifetime, I've actually worked for the Walt Disney Company and I've worked for Walmart. Two completely different business gigs. Uh, totally different uh, things altogether. And uh, when I worked at uh, when I worked for Disney, I worked as a cast member at the uh, Disneyland Resort and Theme Park in Anaheim, California, and I was a Jungle Cruise captain, which probably explains a few things for some of you who had that big question mark over your heads and you're going, oh, that makes sense. Now I understand why he, yeah, yeah, it it explains some of my insanity. So so here's what happens. In Disney, uh, when you go to work for Disney, it's you don't show up the first day and then they say, "All right, here, uh, you, you're a brand new Jungle Cruise captain. Great. Here's your here's your uh, costume, uh, uh, and here's the boat, and let's go for a drive. Here's the thing that you say, and good luck. And you know, and then the next day you're taking people around the uh, Jungle Cruise. Oh no, 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 no. That is not how things go at Disneyland. And, and in fact. I didn't even get to drive a Jungle Cruise boat for the first week that I was at Disneyland. I I, I was actually kind of shocked that uh, I thought by day two or three I would have been in the boat, you know, spieling and doing my thing. No. In fact, the first two days were spent in something called Disney University. And boy, was that interesting. But but basically, Disney University, for two full days, I mean, these are long days. We, uh, the new uh, ca- uh, you know, cast members uh, who were uh, being initiated into the Disney culture, um, uh, we spent uh, a large portion of our days in classes learning the history of Disneyland, learning the philosophy of Disney and the theme parks and the um, and the whole resort thing, um, what our function is in the grander scheme of Disneyland. I mean, I, I mean, it was a, a complete immersion into Disney culture. Along with that, uh, there, you know, spent time, 
you know, going on tours, both on stage and off stage, and going stage. Yeah, yeah. See here, what? Uh, let me fill you in on a little bit of how some of the stuff works at Disneyland. Is uh, when you show up at one of the Disney theme parks, anywhere that a park guest can visit. Okay, you know whether they're in Tomorrowland. Uh, whether they're in, uh, you know, Adventureland, whether they're, you know, whether they're, you know, on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride or riding the Matterhorn, anywhere where the park guests are able to be, that is considered to be quote on stage. That's a stage, and so Disneyland is an an immersive theatrical experience and everything there's a lot of time thought and energy that goes into everything that the uh, park guest experiences while they're at Disneyland from the sights to the smells they pipe in smells by the way um, yeah and, and in fact um, next time you go to Disneyland go down Main Street okay and um, pay close attention to the smells. If you're walking in front of something that looks like a bakery shop or a sweet shop or whatever, you'll notice that uh, you'll smell freshly baked goods. You'll smell cotton candy. You'll smell some sweet things. You know, they pump those they pump those smells in. And if you want to find them, what you do is you uh, while you're on Main Street, look close to ground level, maybe one or two feet above uh, the ground. If you see a circular-looking vent-type thing that's painted to look like it blends with the facade, um, if you put your hand in front of it and there's air blowing out onto the street, you can usually detect that that's where the smells are being pumped in. So it's this total immersive onstage experience. And uh, that's um, so. Uh, anyway, so I spent time learning all of that, going on tours, learning how everything is done at Disney. I mean, uh, and so what happens is, is you know, let me give you an example of uh, you'll if you ask a cast member, a cast member is somebody who uh, works at Disneyland. So somebody who's in costume, they are a cast member on the bigger Disneyland stage. So let's say you're lost. Let's say, you know, you, you really need to use the ladies' room. And so you find a cast member who's standing in front of a queue, maybe working uh, one, of the, uh, one of the ropes and working something out there. And you go to them and you say, excuse me, but where is the closest restroom? What you'll notice is, is that none of them ever point. They won't say, oh, it's over there and point with their finger. Instead, they always present. They, 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 the hand is open, the thumb is up, and it's almost like a parade presentation. It's, it's over there. And what, what, so that's all part of you know, the Disney culture and the Disney way of doing things. So what happens is, is that you, would t you, you, you go and you visit Disneyland. Great. You're, you're having a time of your life. And let's say you go to work there. And what happens is if you're new to Disneyland, then they, they kind of know who the new folks are because they still do things that are against the culture of Disneyland. So uh, let's say you know, your supervisor, one of the leads, uh, one of the cast leads there is uh, you know working something out and telling you to do this or something to do that. And, and let's say uh, uh, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, where's the restroom? If you point to where the restroom is, what's going to happen is, is that the, your, your boss is going to look down his nose and through his glasses at you and give you the hairy eyeball. 
and laser beams are going to shoot from his eye sockets into your skull, and you're going to feel like, oh, man, I just did something wrong. I don't know what it is, but there's laser beams that are there from from my boss's skull. And so what's going to happen is as soon as the um, as soon as the guest leaves the vicinity, the lead's going to turn around and you go, do you know what you just did? And you go, uh, no. What did I just do? I mean, uh, that person asked me where the bathroom was. I said it was over there. And they're going to say, you pointed. And you're going to go, oh, I can't believe I did that. I, uh, man, I am so sorry. And in your lead, so what will happen is, is that you'll notice in cultures that the people who are part of a culture will reinforce the values, reinforce uh, the, the mission and vision of an organization. Same happens in churches. And so one of the reason I, reasons I attend conferences is so that I can see the inner workings of a different cultures in action, okay, and see the stuff that you can't catch from a book or a manual or even a sermon. This is the kind of stuff that you can only get if you show up and immerse yourself in the fish tank, so to speak. And so, um, any, anyway, all of that's basically, you know, to, to kind of point out the fact that, um, you know, when I attend these conferences, some things are taught and some things are caught. And what's caught is important, too, you know, because the, the, the culture kind of shows where the theology is. And, um, you know, I remember a few years ago, I attended a, a church planter conference uh put on by uh the churchplanter.com organization folks and uh Sean Lovejoy is uh, the guy who organized that particular event and that was my first time meeting Perry Noble that was my uh, not Perry Noble but Stephen Furtick that was my first time meeting Stephen Furtick and um yeah the first time I met Perry Noble I met him at uh, Saddleback um but anyway uh so I met Stephen Furtick there and it was interesting to sit in on the workshops uh, for these seeker-driven uh, church planters uh, and these pastors. And the reason why is, Bill, because when, <laughs> you know, in the in, in these workshops, you got to see the inner workings and, and start to get a feel for the culture, and that helped me identify what the center of their theology was, which I would have had a, hard, a much more difficult time doing if I had not been, if I had not attended there. Anyway, so you, you kind of get the gist of what's going on here. But uh, coming back to this whole idea of leadership, caught versus taught. Okay, this this is why I'm the, the the whole reason I went down this particular bunny trail is to get to this point, and that is is that at Perry Noble's leadership conference, what I saw in action was really really bad church leadership. And the reason why is because what was modeled and what was taught in a way that it was caught to the thousands of pastors and church leaders in attendance at Perry Noble's church leadership conference was terrible uh, as far as what it taught regarding how to handle God's Word. And how does it? how do we handle God's Word? We allegorize it. We rip it out of context. We find stuff that's not in the text. We speculate about God. We say things about God that cannot be substantiated or supported from the biblical text itself. Instead, it's uh, you just kind of make up your own, you know, you know, just 
Treat it like a whack snows. Treat it like silly putty. Treat it like Play-Doh. Um, the Bible is your plaything, and you can find. You know, and and what happens is, is that people are we're sitting there taking notes and writing copiously and going, "Oh, Amen, Amen." When uh, when things that were not taught in the Bible were apparently revealed for the first time, and people, "Oh, I've never seen that before." Wow, that's in it. Well, the reason why you never saw it before is because it wasn't there. So, but what does what does the Apostle Paul say to Timothy? Study and show yourself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, rightly handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. So what was missing from Perry Noble's church leadership conference? The modeling of good church leadership, and that's rightly handling God's word. In fact, if you have, quote, church leaders who are mangling God's word, they're not church leaders. They, they stop being shepherds and become, well, agents of the other guy. They're no longer under shepherds of the great shepherd. Instead, they're twisting and mangling God's word. And so um, that was one of the messages that was clearly reinforced at Perry Noble's church leadership conference, that the seeker-driven movement is a movement comprised of pastors who do not, do not discipline themselves when it comes to rightly handling God's word, who basically find stuff in the text that isn't there, who wing it, who completely make stuff up and uh, and allegorize and mistreat God's word. And, uh, the, yeah, you're not a church leader if what you're demonstrating and by your actions and teaching people in your so-called church culture that it's okay to mishandle God's word. It's okay to engage in eisegesis, that it's okay to see things that in the text that are not there. It's okay to teach things about Jesus and the apostles and what the Bible says and what God expects of us that are not clearly taught in God's Word. That isn't church leadership. That's heresy. That's, that's mishandling God's Word, and you know what? It matters. Rightly handling God's Word and teaching sound biblical doctrine matter. This is... Let me put it this way. When it comes to Bible twisting, this is not a victimless crime. Yeah, Bible twisting is not a victimless crime. It is a crime, and the victims who are hurt by it are in danger of the fires of hell. Yeah, that's how serious this is. And so if you're going to have a church leadership conference, a leadership conference for pastors, then what needs to be modeled in every single person on the dais, every person who is put forward as a church leader is a sober and correct handling of God's word. Because if that's not being modeled and reinforced, then the culture that's being created is a, a culture of slipshod, subjective speculation, eisegesis, and uh, mishandling of God's Word. And, and, and if that's the case, that's not a church. Yeah, where pastors are doing that, that's not church. That's something different. That's the broad road to destruction. 
<sighs> I'm just glad I got that off my chest. I needed to talk about that. Yeah. So yeah, don't. So one of the things when if you and those some of you who listen to this program, in fact, many of you listen to this program, you are you are still attending a mega church and you're having troubles with it. Um, this is one of the things to ask yourself: what when it comes to the culture and the church that I'm attending, what is being reinforced both verbally and by action? What is being taught and what is being caught regarding how to handle God's word? Is the church that I am a member of or the church that I am attending, are they in thought, word, and deed upholding the integrity of God's worth, both as the inerrant and inspired word of God, verbally claiming that that's important, but are they also showing that that is important through their actions? It's possible, and this happens quite uh, quite more often than I like to uh, admit, that many churches, they only give lip service to this idea of God's Word being inerrant and inspired. And they only give lip service to the idea of sola scriptura. They'll say, oh yes, we believe the, the Bible is the, in, the, is the inspired and errant word of God. And you say, oh, that's great. That, I'm, I'm so glad that I'm attending a church where the pastor is bold enough and brave enough to verbally and from the pulpit and on the website uh, subscribe to and defend the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, it's one thing to say that. But if the pastor then turns around and every time he opens up the Bible, he engages in eisegesis, Bible twisting, uh, you know, basically allegorizing the text and finding stuff in, in the text that isn't there, he doesn't really believe in the inerrancy, sufficiency, and inspiration of Scripture because his actions contradict his words. If a pastor truly believes in the inerrancy, sufficiency, and, inspir uh, and inspiration of Scripture, then when he preaches, he will preach as one who soberly is handling God's Word in such a way, knowing that it's not his words, that he is handling the very oracles of God, as Peter writes in his epistle. And what he's bringing forth are not his own innovations, not his own thoughts, not the feelings he had while experiencing some kind of spiritual ecstasis. Instead, he is one who is soberly and rightly handling the Word of God. If your pastor is not doing that, then I don't care how much he says he believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, he's just as worthless as an emergent. As a liberal, because the one thing that the emergent church has in common with folks who are twisting and eisegeting and all that kind of stuff, they're all enthusiasts. They're getting extra biblical, uh, they're getting information about God from other sources other than the Bible. So, you know, you, you think about this. Jesus told a parable about two brothers, okay? And, you know, the father went to two brothers and he said to one of them, you know, go out and work in the uh, you know, work out in the uh, farm. And, and, and the, one of them said, no way. You know, <laughs> get lost, dad. I'm not going to work today. And then he later repented and went out and he worked in the, in the, worked in the field. And then the other brother, 
the father went to and said, go work today. And, and, the, and the brother said, oh, yeah, no problem, Dad. I'll be, I'll, I'm on it. I, I'm going to go out and I'm going to work the field. No problem, Dad. And then he never went. So which of the two did the will of God, did the will of his father? Ironically, it's the one who said no way and then went. The one who said he would and then didn't, didn't do the will of God. We must look at Christian leaders this way. We must look at them this way. Though the Christian leader who says that he believes in the inerrancy and sufficiency and inspiration of Scripture, but refuses to properly handle God's Word and to preach it correctly, is that brother who said to his father, oh, sure, I'll be happy to go work in the field, and then never went. It's just mere lip service. So when it comes to pastors, when it comes to church leaders, they have to be judged not by just what they say they believe, but by their actions, what's being taught and what's being caught, what's being promoted as important verbally and what's being reinforced as important by the culture itself. What is the culture self-policing? That'll tell you everything. So don't tell me that your church believes in the inerrancy of God's word when your pastor is turning around and treating it like a plaything. That pastor does not believe in the inerrancy of God's word, does not believe in the sufficiency of God's word. His actions belie his unbelief. You must look at what's being taught and what's being caught. That's important. Because if you're going to talk about true Christian church leadership, it always, always comes down to how is God's word being treated. Jesus says, if you love me, if, you, if it's the one who loves me will guard my word. Keep that in mind. That was a long way to go. <laughs> Don't dial monologue today. Sorry, I just I have to get these things off my chest as I'm thinking through my experience at New Spring. Um, it, it's, it's important. But we're up on our first break. When we come back, I'm going to read an email. Um, oh, man. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at my time. I'm going to get all this in today. Um, we're going to let, Oh, man. i got to make some decisions here. Tell you what. I'll tell you what we're going to talk about in the second half of the first hour when we get back, and I'll cue you, uh, clue you in as to what our sermon review is going to be about in the second hour. And believe me when I tell you, the, second, the sermon review today is going to relate to what I talked about in the monologue today. So um, while, while we're away on this break, I'll have to make some executive decisions. If you... Oh, man, I can't believe I've done this. Hey, can you tell I've been out of the saddle a little bit too long? Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any uh, previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevins. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> 
service. This is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like to return the Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Oh. Well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside, helps you overcome the sins of the flesh, never leaves me nor forsakes me, and will take me to heaven when I die. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't stock that Jesus here. You'll have to go somewhere else to have that Jesus. Well, I guess I'll just stick with the one I got since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir. Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that? Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR, or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 
off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, lip service to the inspiration of Scripture is just that. It's lip service. If you really believe it, then actually preach it and correctly handle it. Otherwise, you don't. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. That's right, partner with us. Uh, $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And that's an important thing to do because that six ninety five helps us uh, level out our, our our giving in such a way that we can budget our expenses properly every month, which is mucho importante for us to do. Yeah, that's a little Spanish there. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And just so you all know, uh, we did get a, a a very generous contribution from a listener that will allow us to uh, to add a little bit of part-time help here at uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And that help starts very soon. I'm very excited about that. Woohoo! So thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah, that means we'll be able to get the podcast up on time and other things. So, yeah, we'll be – anyway, long story. So just want to let you know that. Okay. I've made some decisions over the uh, over the uh, paying our bills break, and uh, I've got – we didn't even talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, one of the things I want to talk about today here – I got a news story. Man, I'm going to have to wait to get this. So much is going to have to wait till tomorrow. But that's okay. Tomorrow's program is practically done as far as the research is concerned. Real quickly, I want to talk about Richard Dawkins. He had a reaction against the Pope uh, at, at one of the Pope's speeches uh, in Great Britain. In fact, I've been watching the uh, the British newspapers, and it was all Pope all the time in the religion sections. Uh, last week, uh, Pope Benedict visited uh, Great Britain, and, uh, and the Pope said something that really torqued um, – uh, new atheist Richard Dawkins, and uh, I, I got to take Richard Dawkins to task. We'll take a look at that, and then uh, let's see here. Um, tomorrow we'll have to talk a little bit more about contextualization. Uh, Ed Stetzer has written a piece where he takes on some of the ideas, uh, some of the critiques uh, leveled against contextualization, specifically the, one, of the, one of the lectures we played here at Fighting for the Faith a couple of weeks ago from Thabiti Abana uh, Wile. Uh, I can't pronounce his last name. Any anyway. Um, in talking about the problem with uh, mixing culture in the church. And so Ed Stetzer, the uh, the missiologist who works with Acts 29 and others, has uh, written uh, you know, uh, against some of the um, critiques. And so we'll, we'll cover that tomorrow on t- uh, tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And, uh, and let's see here. Uh, today we're going to do part two. Uh, remember uh, Katie Sousa talking about 
how the light of Jesus uh, heals everything, and we played Soul Man. Uh, well, we, we've got part uh, installment number two of her bizarre theology that we'll play today. And then tomorrow I got some email I want to get to. But then in hour number two of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, uh, I'm going to be reviewing a sermon by a gentleman by the name of Judah Smith. Judah Smith from the City Church in uh, Seattle, Washington. I think it's in Kirkland, which is in one of the suburbs of Seattle. I, I used to live there. And um, and Judah Smith was uh, one of the featured presenters at uh, Perry Noble's leadership conference last week, and uh, and he ha- at the end of his uh, presentation, he had the entire building, with the exception of one person, standing up and cheering and giving God high fives and amening. By the way, the one person who refused to stand at the end of his speech was me, and um, and the reason I refused to stand up is because this guy was totally mangling the Bible, totally mangling the biblical text. And there's no way I'm going to stand up and high-five Jesus uh, for uh, uh, basically an exercise in eisegesis and Bible twisting. Now, I don't have access to the audio yet of of, uh, Judah Smith's presentation at uh, Perry Noble's Leadership Conference. That being the case, the next best thing is to do a, a sermon review. And so I found a sermon that I think is in the pretty much the same category and deals with the similar uh, concepts of of what was in his leadership speech and the name of it is Gone with the Wind and so in hour number 2 today we're going to be reviewing that sermon and by the way it, uh, the Stephen Furtick uh, after uh, Judah Smith gave his uh, rip roaring uh, adventures in Isa Jesus uh, speech uh, compared his preaching ability uh, that, that compared Judah Smith's preaching ability to the basketball uh, skills of LeBron James and call, and called kid you not he called Judah Smith the LeBron James of preaching. Uh, well, so we're gonna figure we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna closely scrutinize his, uh, Judah Smith's preaching skills when it comes to handling God's word to see if uh, what we're dealing with here is superstar LeBron James in. A, in preaching attire, if you can call it that. So that, that'll that be in hour number two of uh, Fighting for the Faith. But uh, so keeping an eye on my uh, on my time here, because obviously I was waxing eloquent during the uh, first half of the first uh, hour of the uh, program today. Well, let's switch gears and go to the news here. All right. Um, from the... Uh, Faith and Reason section of the USA Today uh, website. Atheist Dawkins rages at Pope uh, tying godless, god, the, tying the godless to the Nazis. And um, yeah, this. So um, yeah, th- this is uh, the blog over uh, the Faith and Reason blog over at the uh, at USA Today. Um, Britain's best-known atheist Richard Dawkins is sputtering mad over Pope Benedict's equating the godless to potential Nazis. In his speech to Queen Elizabeth, when the pontiff arrived uh, yesterday for his four-day visit to Scotland and England, Benedict hit his standard theme of warning against secularism and backed it up by praising the way Britain fought Nazi tyranny that wished to eradicate God from society. That was the gist of the quote. Let me give it in its fuller context. Here's what the Pope said in <clears throat> more full context. <clears throat> quote, this is Pope Benedict. Even in our lifetime, we can recall how Britain and her leaders stood against a Nazi tyranny that wished to eradicate God from society 
and denied our common humanity to many, especially the Jews who were thought unfit to live. I also recall the regime's attitude to Christian pastors and religious who spoke the truth in love, opposed the Nazis, and paid for that opposition with their lives. You think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As we reflect on the sobering lessons of the atheist extremism of of the 20th century, let us never forget how the exclusion of God, religion, and virtue from public life leads ultimately to a truncated vision of man and of society, and thus to a reductive vision of the per- of the person and his destiny. Uh, did that sound outrageous to you? Uh, no, that did not sound outrageous to me. And his statement that um, Britain and her leaders stood against a Nazi tyranny that wished to eradicate God from society and denied our common humanity to many— uh, is that's absolutely true. Now, if you understand German fascism, something of which I've been doing a lot of study lately on for my uh, my second master's degree, um, I can speak definitively to this. The Nazis, the reason why they were so anti-Semitic is because they hated Judaism for giving us a God who gave us transcendent moral values and laws that we all humanity was supposed to subscribe to. They hated this idea that there was a law above governments. And what they wanted was truth in community. And um, so what the Pope said was not incorrect, inflammatory or anything. It was in fact, I would basically say it was pretty demure. It, was, uh, it wasn't really out there as far as anything that he said. But um, new atheist Richard Dawkins, I mean, I, he practically blew a gasket. I, I, you know, based on his response, I, I'm thinking the poor guy might uh, suffer from a stroke if he keeps up this. But uh, Richard Dawkins writes, he says, even if Hitler had been an atheist, his political philosophy was not based upon atheism and had no connection with atheism. Hitler was arguably, and by his own account, a Roman Catholic. No, he wasn't. If he was a Roman Catholic, he was not a Roman Catholic in good standing. Okay, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Uh, Hitler did not do what he did, and fascism did not do what it did, because of its allegiance to Roman Catholic dogma in any sense of the word. That's ridiculous, and it's, and it's historically untrue. <clears throat> in any case, he enjoyed the open support of many of the, and most of the senior ca- uh, Catholic clergy in Germany and less demonstrative support of Pope Pius XII, even if Hitler had been an atheist, and he certainly was not. The rank-and-file Germans who carried out the attempted extermination of the Jews were Christians, almost to a man. Uh, no, that's again not true. And I, you know, I would recommend, um, you know, I mean, since Richard Dawkins likens himself to an educated, you know, rationalist type of guy, um, he needs to do some uh, do some reading on this. Uh, I would recommend the book The Twisted Cross, which explains exactly what was going on, uh, Christian, you know, in, in, in regarding Christianity. In uh, in Nazi Germany, it it was that that was not an expression of Christianity that took place there. It was it was absolute liberalism, liberalism, rationalist liberalism run amok, and a syncreti- uh, uh, basically trying to syncretize Christian theology with uh, 
uh, with uh, German fascism. That was what was going on. Another book, um, recently received this one and partway through it now, is a book uh, re- uh, recently published called The Aryan Jesus, Christian Theology and the Bible in Nazi Germany by Susanna Heschel. Now, this one has to be read a little, it has to be read somewhat critically because some of her documentation in this book is actually very good. Some of the conclusions that she draws from her uh, research, I think, overstate. Uh, it may, may, may not maybe an overstatement of the conclu- you know what the research shows, but overall it paints a really uh, she does a fine job of, of quoting primary documents uh, of uh, of the syncretism that was going on of liberalized Christianity and those who stood up to Nazi Germany who were Christians. Uh, by the way, uh, those of us uh, who are confessional Lutherans, fascinating story. If you uh, as as I've been doing my research, seeing the interplay. And the critique of uh, Hermann Sasse, Hermann Sasse against uh, uh, Karl Barth uh, during you know, during this uh, period. Um, Sasse was fan- uh, just a fascinating, bold defender of confessional Lutheranism, and uh, he saw that uh, both those who were syncretizing uh, Christianity with uh, with German fascism. And those and uh, the neo orthodox, the 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 beginning neo orthodox movement in the in the form of Karl Barth, he saw them as equally as uh, destructive and dangerous to the faith. And uh, yeah, just fascinating stuff. And uh, if if you haven't read uh, Herman Sasse's works, they're fantastic. Uh, he has a, a trilogy, a We Confess series. Um, if you can get a hold of them as used books, I don't know if they're still published, but they, and they're just they're worth their weight in gold. So anyway, I digress. So anyway, apparently um, uh, Richard Dawkins, um, he doesn't know what he's talking about here. He 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 doesn't. And since I'm a, you know I'm working on this in the postgraduate uh, degree, I can speak definitively. Uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. As for somebody who claims to be an ardent defender of truth and reason, um, what he said is um, not historically. Defensible. In fact, what Pope Benedict said is actually true to history, and I think Benedict would know he lived it. <sighs> anyway, so I just I thought I'd throw that in there. This, you know, by the way, the uh, the uh, uh, Andrew Brown of the Guardian in the UK <laughs> pretty much told uh, Richard Dawkins that he needs to chill out, and I I would agree. He needs to chill out, and uh, and uh, and by the way. He, <laughs> Yeah, can we not attribute the millions upon the tens and hundreds of millions of people who were murdered by their governments in the 20th century? Um, I think we can uh, draw a connection between atheism and the murdering of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people by Marxist communist regimes back to atheism there's a one to one correlation there i wonder what uh, rich i wonder if me pointing that out might uh, cause richard dawkins to blow a gasket okay moving along here now a few weeks ago uh, we played part part of part 1 of this series uh, from katie susa
Yeah, Katie Sousa hangs out with the extreme prophetic uh, folks, and her videos are are, are viewable at xpmedia.com. And, oh, man, is this just crazy stuff. Uh, This is the Glory Light of Jesus Part 2. And uh, the reason I'm playing this partly is because it's... It's a train wreck to listen to, but partly because it helps us understand how to properly handle God's Word. By way of bad example, here's how not to handle God's Word. Here is Katie Sousa. Hi, my name is Katie Susan, and I'm with Expected in Ministries. For the next few days, for just 10 minutes a day, I'm doing a mini-series on how the light of Jesus heals your soul. I'm sure you've heard the scripture before in Malachi 4.2 that says the Son of Righteousness, meaning Jesus, arises with healing in his wings and his beams beams of light. The light of Jesus can heal every part of our body, including our soul man. As we've been releasing this powerful truth... In- now, now, if you want to hear soul man, you know, James Brown, you're going to have to go back to a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith. I will not be... Uh- replaying that as we listen to Katie Sousa. You're just, just, but if you if you want to have the song playing in your head, you know, I'm a soul man. Yeah, then, you know, go ahead and feel free to sing inside your own head. I do that all the time. Yeah, it makes me feel better. Conferences across the nation, people have reached a whole new level of freedom in their life. They've had physical healings, emotional healings, even healings in their finances. And as for me, since I have been soaking my soul in the light of Jesus, I've never felt better in my life. Now, this is part two of the series. If you haven't seen... So because she's discovered this particular teaching that nobody else has ever discovered before, there are people out there who are experiencing miracles in their life, financial miracles, marriage miracles, you name it, there's miracles. It's all because she has been soaking and and, and bringing this new teaching to the uh, church. Yeah, uh-huh. This is how the con works. By the, yeah, that exactly. Yeah, I think she's a graduate of King and the Duke uh, uh, Seminary uh, out there in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But, um, yeah. Part one, I advise you to go back because I'm building biblical precept on biblical precept to lead you into a full understanding of this scriptural truth. Now, where we left off yesterday was in Mark 5. And in the story, the spirit of Legion did not have any right to torment Jesus, who came as a man, because Jesus had nothing in his soul that was in common with the dark realm. But the other man in the story was completely under the power of that spirit of Legion. Now, in Mark 5, it gives us the answer of why that spirit was able to torment that man. Oh, really? Uh Please share with us what you discovered in Mark chapter 5. I can't wait to hear it. It says three times that the man lived among the tombs. The word tombs in the Greek means a monument set up to provide a perpetual remembrance. That's what a soul wound is. It's like a monument inside of you that provides a perpetual recalling of a horrible event that happened in your life. (laughs) <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, so the reason why the um, the guy who was demon-possessed in Mark chapter 5 was possessed is because he lived among the remembrance monuments. And by doing that, he forfeited his right to his sanity, and Legion was able to possess him. Right. Yeah, there isn't a single text. Yeah, 
that says this at all. And because that wound is constantly playing inside of you, it will affect your mind, your will, and even your emotions. And because wounds in the soul man are created by sin, that's what gave that spirit of legion the legal right to afflict that man. He lived among his woundedness. He lived among the tombs. He lived among the past. And because of that, that spirit of legion could torment him. Now, if you want to have total dominion over the enemy, you don't just make war. You get a healing in your soul. Okay, uh, boy, this is quite a story. This is quite a theology. Now, here, here's the here's the issue. Okay, um, she's reading things into the text that are not there. Now, one of the rules of biblical interpretation, or when it comes to Christian doctrine, is that we do not set anything up as a doctrine unless there is clear teaching in the Word of God on the subject that could substantiate it in no uncertain terms. In other words, you don't need spiritual goggles to to be able to find it. You just need to understand grammar. You need to understand words and grammar. Because here's the deal. Words and grammar don't depend upon your spiritual state. Yeah, even pagans are capable of understanding words in context using grammar. They... A pagan can tell you what a noun is, a pagan can tell you what a verb is, and a pagan can tell you about a direct object, can tell you about a subordinate clause, things of that nature, okay? So there, the, so what's going on here is she's just telling us the story. She says that, he, that because um, he lived among the tombs and because the word tomb means some kind of monument set up for remembrance, that that somehow then connected, it basically caused him to legally forfeit his right to his soul, and he had forfeited it to the devil. That's quite a story. But then the question arises, where does the Bible clearly teach this doctrine? Where does the Bible say that? Answer, it doesn't. So what she's doing is not actually exegeting the passage. What she's doing is not actually teaching you anything about the Bible and God's Word. She's completely making stuff up. And you don't have to know Greek in order to disprove her. So you can't make a doctrine unless there's a clear teaching. And so, yeah, there's no clear teaching that says that he legally forfeited his right to his soul man because... He lived among the tombs. Remember what Jesus said in John 14. He said, the prince of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. There's nothing in me that's in common with him, and nothing in me belongs to him, so he has no power over me. This is the true way to take total dominion over the dark kingdom. We must be first healed in our soul, man. Let me tell you some really amazing testimony. And where in the Bible does it say that we first must be healed in our soul, man? That passage you read about Jesus doesn't say that. While we were on tour in the United States, I went to a place that I'd never gone to before. We were working with a pastor and some awesome churches in that area, teaching them how to take dominion. And as part of that teaching, we were showing them the necessity of having healing in their soul man. While we were there, the pastor told us about a certain religious sect that had come into that area. 
they had purchased a large portion of land and they had set up that land and built sanctuaries and made it a retreat for the study of Eastern mysticism. About five days into our trip, the Holy Spirit spoke and told my team and I to go up to that facility and to go in it so that we could take dominion for the people in that area. Now, since that facility had opened up, the entire economy in that whole area had took a dramatic slide downward. So the team went up. Pastor drove us up there. We walked into the sanctuary and began to take dominion as the Holy Spirit led us. And it was so easy. It just flowed. And the, the demonic was so removed from their position of power in the second heaven that when we left there, the heavens literally opened up. For the whole 20-mile ride back to the pastor's house, I had a tangible manifestation of burning glory. I mean, it Yeah, burning sounds about right. Yep, yep, sulfur. Brim, yep, brimstone. Yep, burning glory, all right. It was the biggest open heaven I'd ever experienced in my life. And pastor's wife, who was... Really? So we're supposed to believe you because you had burning glory. Did you consider taking maybe a Pepsid or a Prilosec? I mean, if you're, if you're experiencing burning glory, uh, maybe Preparation H wipes might help wasn't used to those kinds of manifestations, was in the van going, wow, it's nine o'clock at night and I feel like I'm getting a sunburn on my face because she too was experiencing the tangible manifestation of open heaven burning glory. Now the next day, something interesting happened. Pastor came and told me that when we went- Yeah, as if that's not interesting enough. Why on earth should I believe you, woman? Because everything you're teaching doesn't need, nothing comports with the word of God into the sanctuary that he immediately started feeling physically sick. He became nauseous and literally wanted to throw up. As soon as he told me that, I... You know, it's so funny you would mention that. You know, just listening to your voice, you never... ...understood what was happening. There was obviously something inside the pastor's soul that he had in common with the demonic powers in that region. And that's why those demons were able to have the legal right to torment him and even cause him. Oh, no. So he needed a healing in his soul, man, because when he visited the place where they set up the Eastern mysticism sanctuary, just by showing up there, he forfeited his legal rights to the demons. <gasps> to be physically sick. So we prayed together and I said, Lord, you need to show us what that wound is because pastor's going to need to have that wound healed in the light of Jesus so that when we leave. I, I mean, seriously, if you're believing any of this, I have got some waterfront, I mean, beachfront property in the Nevada desert. I mean, primo stuff. I mean, we're talking great beach sand. I, I mean, palm trees. I, I mean, the whole night. I mean, and for really inexpensive. And I own a bridge in New York City, too, that I've been trying to sell on eBay. Yeah, if you believe any of this, I would like you to consider purchasing the bridge I'm trying to sell on eBay that's in New York City and um, and my, my beachfront property in uh, in Nevada. Now, those of you who have a map and are capable of looking at Nevada on the map or like maybe like Google Earth or anything like that, don't let the fact that the you know don't let that map confuse you. Yeah, no, no, it, we're we're talking spiritual beachfront property here, and just because you can't physically see the Pacific Ocean touching any portion of the state of Nevada, does not mean at all that there's no beachfront property there. 
they could continue to hold dominion. Three days later, pastor's driving us to another healing school. And on the way, we stop at a convenience store. In the parking lot, Holy Spirit gave him the revelation. Pastor came back to the van and he was weeping. He said first he remembered that he'd been involved in Eastern mysticism 20 years prior. Oh no, his soul man was wounded. But even more important than that was this. When that facility moved into the area, the entire economy in that whole area took a severe downward. Boy, she's a great storyteller, isn't she? That's all this is, is a story. And people are giving her lots of money to tell her stories. Too bad none of this is actually biblical. Tumble. And Pastor and his family's finances took a major hit. Within the three-year period of time, they lost houses and cars, hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings, and even his permanent job that he had had. That experience was so wounding to Pastor's soul that it carved a deep, deep scar inside of him. Inside of his soul, man, yeah. Uh, Do they have hospitals for people who have wounded soul men? And that's what had given the demonic powers in that region the legal right to torment him. Oh, that's just awful. I mean, so let me see if I have this straight. So if your soul man is wounded, then Satan has legal right to torment you. Uh, Again, where is any of this taught anywhere in God's Word? Answer, it's not. This is just a story that she's telling you that has nothing to do with the Bible or God or Jesus or anything. This is just a story. But it sounds pious because she's using words like Jesus and Holy Spirit and church. But this has nothing to do with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, or the church, except for to deceive the church and to pull the church away from Jesus and the Holy Spirit who points us to that same Jesus. That that wound was created by the sin that was sinned against him. And it caused the demonic to have the legal right to come in and literally make him sick. Whoa. Do you see how important it is for us to be fully healed in our soul, man? Let me tell you. I am so thankful that you finally discovered this long missing teaching that nobody in the Christian church has discovered until you came along. Another story. I was in Oklahoma City, and we were just about to start our first session there. The night before the first session, I had a dream. I dreamt that I was manufacturing methamphetamines. <sighs> yeah, that, that, that may be true. Now, many of you might... No, I don't mean physically. She's Obviously, this is... She's, she's a dealer in um, spiritual crystal meth, not physical not know my history, but I'm an ex-felon who did time in federal prison, and one of the crimes... No, actually, I think you're a current felon, no, not ex. Yeah, you're, you're currently a felon because you're stealing through these stories that you're telling that have nothing to do with God and the Bible. ...crimes I committed was manufacturing meth. So here I am having this dream 10 years after it happened, and by that time in my walk with God, I'm knowing that it's not coincidence that it wasn't just some odd random dream, but it was God showing me something that was in my soul. No, your soul man was was wounded? I mean, your soul woman? (gasps) That means the demons had legal rights over you. (gasps) That needed to be healed. 
So I just went forward in faith and said, God, you know, I don't understand why you're showing this to me now. But I uh, Trust me, he wasn't. I believe you're showing me that there was a wound formed in my soul from the sin that I committed against myself by doing meth and by cooking. A uh, sin you committed against who? Meth all those years. So that morning, I soaked my soul in the light of Jesus. And really, you soaked your soul in the light? Did you have this this little light of mine that you were going to let it shine? Yeah, so you let your little Jesus light shine? To Do you have to sell those, by the way? I received a healing. I remember I had my eyes closed. Yeah, where in the Bible does it teach us how to soak in the light of Jesus? What what again? What passage is that found in the Jesus soaking light soaking passage? Yeah, it's not there. Yeah, this is just craziness. Done. <laughs> yeah. So what you're listening to here is a woman who says she believes in the Bible. She believes the Bible to be the word of God. She probably defended its inerrancy, its inspiration. And yet she doesn't teach you a thing about the Bible. Because all the stuff that she's talking about, she's telling you stories about her experiences and drawing conclusions that have nothing to do with God's Word. She's not pointing you to Christ. She's pointing you to her and her dreams and her speculations about demonic legal rights over wounded soul peoples. (sighs) Yeah, just crazy. That's the day we live in. But that's a perfect example of eisegesis and uh, just storytelling. All right, we're up on our second break. When we get back at sermon review time, we'll be reviewing a sermon from Judah Smith, the LeBron James of preaching, according to Stephen Furtick. So you don't want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian you can follow me on twitter my name there pirate christian we'll be right back sissioprified religiosity won't save you you're listening to fighting for the faith This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music. You have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. You're going to be listening to a sermon from one of the featured speakers at Perry Noble's uh, Leadership Conference. A guy by the name of Judah Smith. Stephen Furtick likened him to the LeBron James of um, preaching. Yeah, um, well, let's uh, cue up the music here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the City Church in Seattle, Washington. This is Pastor Judah Smith. And um, as we listen to this sermon... We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Ask yourself this question. Is what Judah is discussing here what the author of the Gospel of Mark intended to communicate? Or is he um, telling us something different? Now, one of the things you're going to notice here, two things that are seriously wrong with the sermon. Number one, 
um, he totally allegorizes the text. Now, it's okay to use allegory sparingly. Think of it as salt, you know, in a sermon. It's okay to have a pinch of it. But when the entire um, exegetical work becomes allegory, well, then we've got a big problem because the text is becoming Plato or silly putty in the hands of the person preaching. And then second, notice how he doesn't understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. Yeah, we'll have to tease this out as we uh, get into the sermon. Let me kill the music here. So, uh, without any further ado, here is uh, Judah Smith. The name of the sermon, by the way, is Mark chapter uh, Gone with the Wind. 6 and verse 30. Are you there? Mark chapter 6, verse 30. <laughs> It reads, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. I love that verse. It always speaks to me that I am to go to Palm Springs. Thank you, Jesus. And let's rest a while. It's validation for vacation. Somebody say amen. That's a good verse right there. For there were many coming and going. They did not even have time to eat. Wow. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude, and he could not help himself. He was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place. And already the hour is late. Send them away that we may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, that is Jesus, you give them something to eat. And they said, well, what are we going to do? Go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? They don't even have 200 denarii, so obviously they're trying to make a point. We don't have enough money to buy all these people bread. Even if we did have enough money, could we rally enough bread to feed all of these people? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? What do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they came back with an, an amazing report. We have five pieces of bread and two little fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. Uh, biblical precedence for golfing. <laughs> it's probably a stadium course. or probably on the 18th fairway. Anyways, so they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he'd taken the five loaves of two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, broke the loaves, gave them the disciples and set before them. And the two fish he divided among them. So they all, so they all, so they all ate. And were filled. So they all ate and were filled. Jesus can supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He, he, he can give you everything you need and it doesn't even add to the national debt. That's how good God is. It doesn't even have to print more money. This is how good God is. They took up 12 baskets full of fragments and a fish, and those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men, just men. That's just counting the men. If you count the women and the children, we're easily talking about 10,000 people. Jesus feeds from five pieces of bread and two little fish. Wow. Now that will frame for us the passage that we'll look at this morning, starting in verse 45. Immediately... 
Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. And while he sent the multitude away, when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. How many know if Jesus got by himself to pray, we should probably get by ourselves to pray? How many think if the son of the living God got into a private place to pray to his father, it's probably a good thing for us to get in the private place and pray to our heavenly father. Somebody say amen. Now, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone. Now, on. Now, I'm going to pause right here for a second here. Now, it's right. We, we ought to pray. But notice how he's running the prayer thing. He's kind of running it through the law, not the gospel. The thing we ought to do rather than the thing that we get to do. And you're thinking, well, that's kind of a, you know, awful uh, stingy. I mean, you're just being overly critical. No, actually, I'm not, because this entire sermon runs through the law. And then we get some some kind of a gospel nugget at the end. But um, yeah. Mm. And also notice that LeBron, the LeBron James of um, preaching. I mean, this is what Pastor Stephen Furtick dubbed uh, Judah Smith at the uh, at Perry Noble's leadership conference. Uh, he, he's kind of he deals. Uh, he's reading this text and kind of letting a lot of glib, tongue-in-cheek, kind of farcical, uh, silly interpretations fly while he's handling God's word here. Yeah, now I understand it's okay to have humor. Um, in in a sermon, I'm not against humor. Um, yeah, just yeah. And LeBron James, you know, I don't think so. But let's continue. The land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he would have passed them by. He he acted as if he would pass them by. That's the original language there. It's not that he had determined to pass them by, but he acted as if he would pass them by. When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. Look at the last verse of our passage this morning. For they did not understand about the loaves because their heart was hardened. I thought we were talking about wind and waves. I thought, I thought we, we, we cut to a different scene, and yet Jesus connects the scenes for us. God himself, the writer of this book, connects the scenes for us. That actually, if the disciples would have applied personally what Jesus did with the loaves and the fishes, they wouldn't have freaked out when they were on the water. That's, that is one of the greatest if, challenges. If they had applied, if they had applied, if they had applied. Yeah. Um, the, the issue here is hardness of heart, lack of belief, lack of faith, lack of trust in Christ. Um, how do you apply uh faith to a situation well yeah, i guess you can but that's uh, it's mm. 
Yeah, and, you know, James, uh, not James, but Mark goes on to point out the fact that they didn't understand Jesus and their hearts were still hard, in, especially in dealing with the fact that Jesus says he's going to Jerusalem to die and to rise again. They, they don't get any of it. But Pastor Judah has pointed out something here that is absolutely true, uh, that this boat story, it's um, that the gospel writer Puts this uh, puts this entire boat story. By the way, there's three boat stories in the uh, Gospel of Mark, three of them, and um, this is the second of them. Uh, the other one, the, the one one is found early. The other one's found in chapter eight. But um, let's let's back this up and see what we've got going on here. Uh, Mark chapter six. I'm going to read it from the ESV. And uh, let's see if we can figure out what's going on in this passage. And then I'll, I might even tie in the second, uh, the third boat story here because I think it's important. Um, verse 30, the apostles returned uh, to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Jesus had commissioned them and sent them out kind of on a mini mission trip, uh, a, uh, you know, a, 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 basically sending them out to practice this idea of preaching the gospel and, you know, training them for the work that they would be doing after his uh, death and resurrection. And so they came back to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away uh, go uh, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. Now, I want to point something out here. This is a slight bunny trail. One of the things that the uh, seeker-driven pastors claim is that Jesus always took care of people's bodily needs before he preached to them. Oh, no, he didn't. And there's several passages that, that, that divulge this truth. Jesus preached to them first. It got it grew late. They were hungry. And, uh, and so after hearing Jesus preach... Jesus then decides to attend to their bodily needs. It, yeah, the seeker-driven guys, their methodology is uh, built on a lie. It's it's not, their claims regarding the fact that Jesus took care of people's physical needs first, then preached. Not true. And this this is one of those texts that points that out. Now, that's a bunny trail. Let's continue. All right, so Jesus said to them, "You give them something to eat." And they said to him, "Shall we go and buy uh, two uh, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat?" And he said to them, "How many loaves do you have? Go and see." And when they had found out, they said, "Well, we have five loaves and two fishes." And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass, and so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of 
uh, of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, this is the context for the boat story. This, this is the context. So here Jesus sets this whole thing up in such a way that you know they realize that he is god that he is capable of providing for our needs and that he does supply our needs and he does so graciously and miraculously by his hand by his grace by his mercy and in a real way okay we all got to understand, when we pray the way the Lord has asked us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. God richly supplies for our needs according to his mercy through the means that he's set up to feed us through work, but it is God who nonetheless is the one who feeds us. He's the one who created the plants, the seeds, the heart, the crops that uh, we that we harvest and bring to market. These are all, the, and God sends the rain and the sun. It is God who feeds us. And here, Jesus just takes away the the middleman and does it directly. Okay, and so the issue here is is that here they've had this amazing miracle done, and it divulges who Christ is, and that He is to be trusted and that he is a loving and gracious and compassionate God who attends to our needs. Okay? And yet the disciples still suffer from, quote, hardness of heart. This is divulged as we continue. So we continue. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other, uh, to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So here... In verse 52, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That This little incident on the Sea of Galilee is tied back to their hardness of heart, which is then, you know, which is tied back to the miracle that Jesus performed. Hardness of heart being lack of faith, lack of trust. Not trusting in God not seeing him as gracious and kind and that he provides for us richly. So that's what's going on in the text. And, you know, I, I, I should wonder if I should fast forward it to the other boat story or would the, uh, the third of the three boat stories in the book of Mark. Let's see here. Um, 
Mark chapter 8, verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. Yeah, see, this in Mark, in Mark chapter 8, there's a whole other... Um, yeah, let me read this, because it's so connected to uh, to Mark 6. Uh, starting at verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to him, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. Again, Jesus, um, more proof that Jesus didn't care, uh, take care of people's bodily needs first. Quite the contrary. Here Jesus preached for three days. The crowd was there for three days. <laughs> And uh, it says, they've now been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Wow. I mean, it makes you want to stop and ask the question, how can you not think that Jesus is not capable of feeding these people? Were you not there when he fed the 5,000? Hmm. How can one feed these people with, uh, with uh, people with bread here in this desolate place? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate, and they were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full and full, and they were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And so the disciples began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you don't have any bread? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And Jesus said to them, do you not yet understand? Stand. And you're going, what is going on here? Well, what's going on here is exactly what we read uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus basically brings up this subject about worrying about food and drink and what you're going to wear and, and, and being provided for, this is a complete lack of faith. I mean, the disciples were not recognizing who they were in the presence of. 
It's not like they had won the cosmic lottery. That's not it at all. Jesus was not a slot machine. But the very king of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, was there. The last thing they should be worrying about is food and things like that. Okay? The cross reference this with Matthew chapter 6. Okay? Starting at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Let me read that again. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor do they gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and yet your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his, God's righteousness, not yours, his, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do, be not, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus here is chastising and rebuking their lack of faith. Jesus here isn't promising them the cosmic lottery, nor is he promising that their lives are going to be peachy kino, that they're going to go through life and that you know they're going to have you know, live in the suburbs of Rome or Jerusalem and, you know, that they'll have 2.3 well-adjusted kids, uh, that they will have uh, the obligatory, you know, two cars in the in a three-car garage in the suburbs, uh, a, a nice entertainment system. And, uh, and you know, and he's not promising them any of that, 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 that things will be well in their marriage, that uh, they're, you know, that everything's going to be perfectly great and, you know, that things in the bedroom will be sp just spicy enough to keep everything interesting until they die. He doesn't promise any of that. He promises them persecution. He promises them trouble because they persecuted Jesus. But he's telling them to trust him, that he will supply their needs even in those dark times of trouble. Trust. Seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Yeah, well, that's, that's a reference to the imputed righteousness of Christ. Read Philippians 3. So all of this is 
a rebuke against lack of faith, lack of trust, lack of belief, doubting God is what it comes down to. And is that not the thing that plagues us all on a daily basis? First sign of trouble? We throw God overboard. He obviously doesn't know what he's doing. Chuck him off. He's, we're going to vote him off the island. Yeah, that's how that goes in Survivor, isn't it? So with that in mind, you know, these the, you know, these themes that Jesus is teasing out, the things that he is really f- focusing on, let's see what Judah does with this with this passage and where he goes with it. It's as believers to contextualize and apply what happens on Sundays on Mondays. It's amazing how easy it is for us to get together on Sundays, experience the presence of God, the power of God, the miracles of God, and yet by Monday morning, we're back to our old self. Doubting, down in the mouth, concerned, anxious, worried. It's amazing how just just a few hours after the service, we can go back to being our old selves. It is imperative that we understand that what Sunday is about is not Sunday. It's about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Come on, somebody. Help me preach this morning. I could use your help. I really could use your help. Preachers sometimes can be the worst. I'm, this is just my preliminary statements, and I'll really start preaching. But preachers can be the worst. Preachers sometimes are dealers and not users. City group leaders and, and, and leaders in the church, we're dealers, but we're not users. I mean, am I the only one that's ever, you know, counseling somebody? You're trying to encourage somebody in their marriage, and then like uh, an hour and ten minutes later, uh, you're, you're yelling at your wife. It's like, Lord Jesus, what is wrong with me? I'm a dealer, but not even not a user. And the problem is, is if you start dealing stuff that you don't use, eventually people will figure it out, and they'll stop buying. Uh, notice, okay, listen to what he just said there. Are you a dealer and not a user? If you're not using the stuff that you're dealing, and what the example he gave runs completely through the law. You're counseling somebody in their marriage, and then an hour and ten minutes later, you're you're, you're doing something awful to your wife or to your spouse, yelling at them or whatever. You're not you're not using the thing that you're dealing. Yeah, um, if the thing that you're dealing in church is God's law and morals exclusively, and you're not properly handling God's law in comparison with the gospel, understanding that the the law is designed primarily to condemn us, that's the primary use of the law, to condemn us, to put us under sin and show us our need for a Savior. Only the Christian understands the law in the light of it shows us what a good work is. But if all you're preaching is moralism, it doesn't take too long for people to figure out you ain't living up to the thing that you're claiming. You're a hypocrite. But if the thing that your pastor is dealing is the gospel, then he is truly a user. Okay? Uh, On this program, I am a dealer of the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins, and that that applies to Christians, not just unbelievers. 
that that's a message that you as a believer needs to hear on a regular basis. Why? Because I need to hear it on a regular basis. My sin is like my beard. It grows back daily. I have to shave constantly. Same with my sin. Over and again, I need the, I need the words of the gospel to deal with my sin. When your pastor is a dealer in the gospel, he is a user. He is somebody who understands that he is somebody who is in desperate need of God's grace because he's a sinner. He understands that he is a spiritual beggar. He's poor in spirit and has nothing to offer God or to offer even you by way of law-keeping. That he's forgiven. He's pointing you to Christ and faith and trust in him for forgiveness of sins and care for our needs here, even in this sinful and broken world, until he returns or we join him in glory at the end of our lives. If, however, your pastor is only dealing the law, he he's basically setting up a situation where he's creating a facade that he's doing the he's doing it when he's really not let's continue right so in reality what we should do is only deal what we've already used and if you deal what you use people will be able to tell and you will have a passion that will be undeniable and people will buy what you're dealing because you're also a user somebody say amen and i'm just glad we're not talking about drugs we're talking about jesus somebody said someone's like well i I know this language this is good okay all right (laughs) i can relate to this Will you pray with me? I want to speak to you this morning from the subject, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. You can write that down or make a mental note if you're a mental giant. And let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, No doubt it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for your relentless, unconditional, unconquerable love and grace towards us. Father, thank you, Lord, that the sun will indeed shine again. We pray today that it will come out for your glory and for our enjoyment. And uh, thank you, Lord, for all of our campuses today. God, we pray your blessing on Belltown, Alderwood, North Sound, Plateau, and right here in Kirkland. Thank you for your presence to permeate this place. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Everybody said? Friends, let friends drink in church. I just got off a plane uh, yesterday evening, and uh, what fascinates me about planes, particularly short plane trips, is that, uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you sit in a plane and you essentially do nothing. The flight attendants uh, serve you uh, almonds, cashews, peanuts, uh, pretzels, and ginger ale. I'm not sure why, but ginger ale is like the drink of choice in the air. Have you ever noticed that? People that don't even drink soda order ginger ale when they're in the air. Ginger ale is just like, it's just the drink. How many of you, be honest, don't lie in church. How many of you have ever drank 
That's not a word, but I just made up. Drinking ginger ale in the air. Just, let me just see. Fascinating. Unbelievable. I love it when I'm right. Almost every single person in this room has had ginger ale in the air. Anyways, so have you ever had your ginger ale, taken your, 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 your party mix, your little party mix, and do some of you fly first class all the time, so you can't relate to some of us, but back where you can't see, Back where, you know, you, you can't even see us in your peripheral. Back in the back, uh, we're having party mix while you're having steak. Just FYI. You're steaking broccoli. <laughs> and they're throwing, they're throwing party mix at us, you know. Can I have another? No! Okay. Sorry. Sorry. You're in coach. You should get a better job. You should work harder. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying. So... But, uh, side note here, um, yeah, you got to be part, uh, stand-up comic, uh, the new hipster type, uh, pastors. I see, here's the deal. This, this is, this is a guy whose, um, wardrobe, well, isn't pastorly at all. I mean, he's got like that hairstyle that looks like he just woke up, you know, in the, you know what I'm talking about? I don't know what it is with this hairstyle, but I mean, it, it, my hair looks just like this after having slept on my pillow all night, and I wake up and it's like a rat's nest. It looks, you know, like looks like a small rodent, you know, had cre- you know took taken up residence in my hair. It, it, I did not know that that was a style, but apparently that's like the style now. And you get the hipster glasses to go with it, and uh, and the V-neck shirt thing going on here. Yeah. Uh. He's so clever, though. I mean, just such a gifted comedian. Anything could happen this morning, I'm just saying. <laughs> Chalk it up to jet lag, okay? Come back next week, I'll be a lot nicer and a lot more biblically accurate. <laughs> but, you know, you can go on a flight for like, uh, like, la- like last night. My last flight was from San Francisco. Chelsea and I flew from San Francisco to Seattle. And uh, it's like an hour and 40 minutes or something like that. And yet in, in, in just that short period of time where you're essentially doing nothing, you know, you're sitting there, someone's throwing party mix at you, you're getting your ginger ale, you read a book, listen to something, watch something maybe on your iPad or iPod or whatever. And, and yet in just two short hours, you can get off a plane and feel relatively fatigued. Have you ever known? I mean, just like all of a sudden you're just exhausted. You get off the plane and you're like, oh my word, I'm just, I'm just drained. You know, that was very demanding, you know? I mean, it was very difficult to get that party mix open. And I had two bags, you know? And it's just a weird feeling. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but you get off a plane, you're like, why am I so tired? I just didn't do anything. I just sat there. And I always kind of wondered, and I, I ran into this article, and I'm not sure where I read it from, uh, so don't, don't ask, uh, but uh, I read it at some point somewhere, that, that actually there is a reason behind that, that your brain, while it's sitting in the plane, is continually processing the loud noise of the airplane engine. 
That, that noise, is, your brain has to continually process it. Now, it ends up eventually turning into white noise to you, and you can barely even hear it anymore. But if you ever, you know, when you get off a plane, you realize, whoa, that, when everything kind of quiets down, that was an exceptionally loud noise. And it was. And your brain has to process that every nanosecond. And as it processes, it actually produces fatigue in your body, even though you're physically, essentially doing nothing at all. It's the noise. Similarly, golf, I enjoy golf. How many golfers in the house? Wow, such a a golfing church. Okay, but um, golfing can be a lot of fun. Golfing can be uh, hellish too, particularly when there's wind. When wind starts to howl, uh, it can really create chaos on the golf course. But it's another thing I kind of wondered. I'm thinking, is the wind really affect that little white ball? And so I read another article. I feel like I'm such a reader. Readers are leaders, and leaders are readers. But anyways, um, I, I, I didn't read this in the Wall Street Journal. I've, I've never read the Wall Street Journal. I never will read the Wall Street Journal, just in case you cared. But anyways, I probably read this in a, in a child's book somewhere to my boys, but... Well, they say in, in, in golf, I read this article, that uh, it's not that the wind affects a little white ball all that much, but the sound of the wind howling by the ears of the golfer affects that golfer mentally. And the golfer actually convinces himself or herself that they have to do something exceptional to get this ball off the tee in the air towards the hole. And so what ends up happening is the golfer believes that because of the sound, the hissing of the wind by his ears or her ears, they actually believe they got to do something beyond themselves to propel this ball towards the hole. And they usually, typically, try to do something that is too much, they're incapable of doing, they try to swing too hard, and it affects the ball negatively. But in reality, whether you're in a plane or on a golf course, it's not that the wind is actually affecting you all that much, but it affects your brain, which produces fatigue, it produces chaos, it produces you attempting to do something that is beyond your ability. It's it's wind. The Bible says in our passage today that the wind was against them. I want to talk to some people this morning that there are areas in your life that you came with this morning where the wind is against you. I think the... Okay, notice that he's now allegorizing the text. See, the, the, the disciples were in the boat and the wind was against them. Now, this begs the question, is the purpose of this text, was the reason why the Holy Spirit inspired it to be written, was so that you can allegorize it in this way? That's the question that needs to be answered. The windiest thing in in our lives are words. Call them windy words. All of a sudden, your spouse, you swore together, you'd never used this word, but now your spouse, in, in certain surroundings, when you get in heated arguments, your spouse starts using the word divorce. Your boss is starting to use the word layoffs. And these are windy, windy words. Doctor says, you're battling depression. 
You, 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 are, you have clinical problems with depression. It's a windy word. Doctor says it's cancer. It's a windy word. Not that that word, not that it's even happened, not that, for instance, six years ago, the doctor said, our founding pastor, my father, the pastor of this church for 18 years, the doctor said, you know, you'll be dead in just a few years. Well, well, that hadn't happened yet. We're still fighting. We're still believing. But, but oftentimes, come on, church. It's windy words. Just the words create fatigue. There's no even evidence. You haven't even been laid off yet. There has been no divorce. No divorce has been filed. But just the words create fatigue, anxiety, worry. They create in you that you try to do stuff that are beyond yourself and you're trying to save yourself and save your job and save your marriage and save your kids. Just like that golfer on the golf course, when the wind starts to howl, he or she tries to do something that's beyond their ability to somehow save their game. Oftentimes, we do the same things in life. I want to talk to people this morning who are in storms. It's, it's an unusual time to be in a storm because it's summer season, much like Jesus referred to with his disciples. Let's go to a deserted place. Let's get some time by ourselves. Let's take a vacation. Let's be together. Summer for us is that time. Let's, let's take some downtime. Let's relax. Let's be together. And yet there are so many people in the midst of downtime and vacationing and trying to relax. You really can't relax and you really can't uh, recoup your energy because you are in turmoil because you're going through a storm. The wind is against you. Please understand whether you're here today and you're a believer and you love Jesus or you're here and you're a searcher, you're a seeker, you're wondering if God is really real. You just came to check out this church thing, this Jesus thing, this Christian thing. You came with a friend or you came with a neighbor or you came kind of with a stranger who just invited you randomly and you thought, yeah, what's the heck? What the heck? Why not? I'll just kind of give it a try. And you're wondering if there really is a God. Let, 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 let me just encourage you. Yes, there is a God. There is a fourth dimension. There is an unseen world. You can look at human history. Uh, humanoids have been infatuated with a fourth dimension. We've been infatuated with an unseen world. We've been infatuated with the concepts of God and evil. We've been infatuated with good and evil and demons and angels because there is something inside all of us that tells us that there is indeed another dimension than the one that we currently live in. God has put eternity in the heart of man. Somewhere deep inside you, you know there is another dimension, and there is. And in that dimension, there is a good God. And in that dimension, there is an evil enemy. And the Bible says Satan himself. Okay, got to point something out here. This is true to a point. Romans 1 makes it clear that the law of God is written on our heart. The law of God is written on our heart. That doesn't mean that we have a yearning for the divine. It means that our heart accuses us because the law is written there to accuse us. Yeah, that's the problem here. Again, major confusion of law and gospel going on here. And in this allegory, we, yeah, boy. Seeks to destroy your life, to steal, kill, and destroy. But there is a good God who wants to give you life and life more abundantly. The Bible. There it is. Let me back this up just a smidge. Yeah, hang on a second here. God has put eternity in the heart of man. 
Somewhere deep inside you, you know there is another dimension, and there is. And in that dimension, there is a good God. And in that dimension, there is an evil enemy. And the Bible says Satan himself seeks to destroy your life, to steal, kill, and destroy. But there is a good God who wants to give you life and life more abundantly. The Bible says the... Okay, notice what's going on here. The devil's job is to keep you from experiencing an abundant life, but God is good and gracious and wants you to have an abundant life. Is that the gospel? Does you, do you think that maybe that explains why he's allegorizing this text in order to play out this particular dualism? Satan, who wants to keep you from experiencing an abundant life, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He's out to destroy your life and make you miserable. And then there's there's God. He wants you to live life abundantly. It's an interesting dualism, but I don't think this is the dualism really laid down in Scripture. This is the dualism that, uh, that fits more along the lines of the prosperity gospel wind was against them. God did not create that wind. He is sovereign over all things, but he allows the enemy like a dog on a leash to have a certain level of authority in this third dimension. And there is an enemy and there is a Satan and he is against you. So according to Pastor Judah here, when the disciples got in the boat and the wind was against them, that was Satan who was blowing against the disciples. That wasn't a wind created by God. That was a wind created by the devil. Um, Can you provide a single passage of Scripture that says that? No. He is afraid not only of who you are now. He's afraid of who you might become. He's afraid not only of where you are today, but where you're headed and where you're going. And the enemy does not want you to get to where you're going. Because where you're going is not just about you. Where you're going is about other people. Some of you think it's just about the business that's locked up in your mind and in your heart that you've been preparing for and planning for and thinking about and meditating and talking to your spouse about and some friends about, looking for investors. And maybe someday I'll start this business and somehow you've been convinced that this business is selfish because you keep thinking I want to make millions like that millions of dollars is just about you no that millions of dollars will be able to help people around the world hear about the good God Jesus Christ you'll also be able to hire employees and some of those employees won't know Jesus but when you hire them they'll they'll become a part of your business and you'll be able to share the love of God with them and many of them their lives will be transformed and so where you're headed is not just about you that business you're is not just about you. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who will be influenced by the dream God put in your heart. Um, where does the Bible say that God's going to put a dream in my heart that Satan then is afraid of that dream coming to fruition and Hmm. Seems like a very temporal type of salvation that we're talking about here, doesn't it? Not only that, I can't think of a single passage of Scripture that teaches any of this nonsense. But this is the new dualism. This is the new dualism set up by the uh, seeker-driven guys who uh, have bought in, in su- to some degree, uh, to the uh, prosperity gospel. Satan uh, wants to, uh, he's afraid of your potential. 
is afraid of that uh, vision that apparently God is going to lay on your heart for greatness. And uh, if you have an audacious faith, then you're going to bring that, you know, then that, 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 that dream is going to happen. And Satan is going to be thwarted in, in making your life miserable and, and the lives of others. And you will be a blessing to other people uh, because uh, that's what Satan wants to stop. He wants to stop that dream that God has for you from coming to, into existence. Where, again, is any of this taught in the Bible? It's certainly not taught in Mark chapter 6. Not at all. Sometimes the devil understands that better than we do. And so the wind is against you. Because when you get to the other side, lives will be changed. Lives will be transformed. Please understand, God is not the storm starter. He's the storm ender. But there is an enemy who has allowed storms, words to be spoken over, to, over your life, chaos to ensue, to get you off your course and to keep you from your other side. There it is again, that dualism. Yeah, see, Satan, he's got to keep you from getting to your other side. This is an allegorical uh, reading of this text. Well, you see, because the disciples, were they were in a boat and they were going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but the wind was against them. And this shows, if you put on your magical, allegorical, uh, seeker-driven spectacles, you can see the text that nobody else can see. You can see the subtext. You can see the real wheels spinning. And the real wheels that are spinning here is that this is an allegorical parable, apparently. And the way this gets applied to your life is that the winds of these the, these windy words uh, are being spoken against you because Satan's trying to keep you from getting to your other side. What a load of malarkey. Bovine scatology is uh, a phrase that comes to mind. None of this is actually taught in the text. He's reading stuff into it. And how did he get here? Oh, yeah, that's right. He allegorized the text. Notice when I handled the text earlier, I had to bring in some other passages to help shed some light on it so that you can see that this is really what's going on here is an interplay between you know, Jesus' chastisement and faith or lack of faith, hard-heartedness. This isn't about them being kept from getting to their, quote, other side. This is about lack of faith and trust, fear, love, and trust in Christ. The wind was against them, the Bible says. Before we go any further, let us consider for a moment in verse 45, it says that Jesus made his disciples get in the boat. That word made means to strongly urge to invite vehemently. I would like you to get in the boat now. I want you to consider something with me. It was God who got you in the boat you're in. God called you into that boat. You say, well, Judah, 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 look, look, man, uh, 
I got myself into this one. It's a bad situation. I got myself in this business partnership. I got myself into this marriage. I shouldn't have married this person. This is the wrong person. You know what's so great about God? He can take the wrong boat and make it the right boat. God can take what the enemy meant for evil and he can turn it for your good. Let me tell you, if you married her, she is the right boat. She is the right spouse. She is the right woman for you. God can take the wrong woman and make her the right woman. No, you don't have to get a divorce. No, you don't have to break up. You can stay together. God can make you the right man and can make her the right woman. And together you can have a beautiful marriage with beautiful children and a bright future. Somebody say amen. It was God who made us get into this boat. We have boats of all kind. Marriage is a boat. Children are, are a boat. Our business is a boat. Friendships are a boat. Church is a boat. God made us get into this boat. He wooed us into this boat. He called us into that boat. If that is indeed true, he will not let this boat go down. Even Paul, I mean, I can't find any biblical precedence. Yeah, now we're going to allegorize all of our life. I mean, any situation you're in, that's a boat. <laughs> oh, boy. To prove to people that God puts people in boats and lets them go down. Even Paul, his boat got a bit broken up, but he found pieces to still float on. Uh, that would be literally, yes. Paul was literally in a shipwreck, and you were talking allegorically of different, of you know, the different boats in our, quote, lives. Basically, the circumstances we're in. Notice how he, he he's weaving in and out of of literal, you know, what literally what the Bible teaches is history and his allegory. It kind of basically, this is a this is like a magic trick. This is a sleight of hand. Yeah. By the way, uh, Paul's boat ended up getting beheaded because his boat ended up docking in prison for uh, a few years, and uh, and then that you know ultimately led to him being. Uh, ordered to be executed by the emperor Nero and he was beheaded. So, you know, so apparently uh if your boat if you're in if your life is just basically full of different boat circumstances, it's possible for your boat to end up being put in dry dock. Yeah, it it can happen. And uh and it, it may not be just to get the barnacles off because it might end up that your boat's going to end up getting burned. Or it's possible that your boat will go down. Yeah, it's <sighs> Maybe your boat's the Titanic. God will not let you sink. He put you in this boat. And sometimes you have to remind him of that. Not that he needs reminding, but as you remind him, it reminds you. Uh, where does it say that God won't let your boat sink? Jesus said that we would be persecuted. I mean, isn't martyrdom a form of your boat sinking? God, you got me in this boat. You put me in. And, and look, look, on Wednesday night, I was telling the Lord that you got me in this boat. And you would too. 30,000 people expecting to hear from God. Bishop Jakes is sitting here. Uh, Ed Young is sitting here. Andy Stanley is sitting here. Brian Houston is sitting here. Jensen Franklin is sitting here. And I'm going, and, and I'm right here. Yeah, he spoke at a conference. I think it was Ed Young's conference earlier this summer. And in T-minus two minutes, they're going to give me the microphone. And for 45 minutes, they want to hear from me. And I'm going, oh, Jesus, if you ever loved me. 
I'll go to Africa. You got me in this boat. And when I get up on that stage, you, you butter paddle. Because I cannot locate an oar. <laughs> Don't let my canoe sink, Jesus. You got me in this boat. You called me for such a time as this. God called you for what you're doing. He anointed you. He graced you. He wooed you into it. Some of you think he tricked you into it. He does that too. He tricked me into marrying this woman. You know, whatever. He, he does that too. But he won't let you sink. He won't let you sink. I can't find it in the Bible. He will not let you go down with the ship. God is a good God. We're going to make it to the other side. It says he sent the multitude away. In verse 46, he went by himself and began to pray on a mountain. Verse 47 says an evening came. The boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. I don't understand this, but it means they had been a while on this boat in the sea. I don't understand God's concept of time because I am an agent of time, I am a product of time, and God is not. He does not operate in the realm of time. He's in a, he's in a context called eternity. But it's so difficult for us as agents of time, as products Okay, I want you to listen carefully to this next little segment of the sermon. Uh, he's going to go on and on and on about time versus eternity and stuff like that. None of the things he's saying are actually taught in the Scripture. This is either just philosophy or pure speculation on his part. But we have no clear word from God regarding many of the assertions that uh, Judah is making here. None. He's just... I, I'm not sure where he's getting his information, but uh, I, I don't see him exegeting this out of any passages. No, he's just making unfounded allegations regarding the nature of God and planting those those assertions firmly in midair. Uh, listen carefully. ...of time for us to comprehend how, how God doesn't, doesn't work always on our timetable. Notice what it says in the next verse. It says he came to them about the fourth watch of the night. That's between 3 to 6 a.m. So they got out on the sea afternoon time. Then the sun set. Then the sun went down. And now the sun's almost about ready to come back up. And Jesus has left them out there for quite some time. What you've got to understand about God is time is not a problem for him. Like, remember when Lazarus, he dies? And remember what Mary and Martha say? If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You understand what they're doing? They are agents of time. They think in, in, in linear time. They, they're they're timetable people. And so they assume that because God was not there, Jesus was not there 48 hours ago, that now that 48 hours has passed, he is somehow bound to time. But isn't that how it is? God, I've been in this storm for six years. Have you been counting? The answer to that is he hasn't. Okay, I've got to stop here. Uh, the reference to Lazarus and Mary and Martha 
Um, it wasn't that Mary and Martha were looking at things regarding linear time. In fact, if you would read the text in the Gospel of John, their problem was is that they were viewing death as final. Yeah, it wasn't that, oh, if you had just been here, he wouldn't have died in looking at the time aspect of it. No, 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 no. 48 hours ago, he died. And if you had been here, he would have been healed and he wouldn't have died. The time element is not the issue here. The issue is they see death as, as well, kind of a final thing. How many of you all know anybody who's uh, died, been dead for a few days, and then, you know, showed up a few days later saying, you know, I'm hungry. Um, I'd like something to eat. Um, can you help me get uh, the suit off? It was really tough digging out of that grave that you stuck me in. Yeah, but, yeah, man, six feet under. Man, it took some time to dig out of that. I mean, it, that, that doesn't happen. Every single dead person that I've encountered has remained dead. I think that's kind of the point of Mary and Martha's angst here is, is that He's Lazarus has been swallowed up by death. Talk about missing the point. A day is like a thousand years to God. He did. <laughs> I mean, you imagine Mary. I, I don't blame Mary and Martha. Really, God, you couldn't have made it 48 hours ago. 48 hours ago and all of this mayhem wouldn't have happened. Remember how Mary tries to explain to him that you, you're late Have you ever tried to explain to God that he's late? He doesn't understand that. God doesn't deal with late. God is, he, he's never late, but he's rarely early. Have you noticed that? <laughs> we say that God is always on time, which is really not true, because he doesn't, he's not really on to time. Time is not a factor for God. In that sense, you understand that? You understand what I mean by that? What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that when we're going through tough seasons, we want to put God on a timetable. We want to tell God that, look, I only got so much time. Excuse me? You're talking to the eternal one. You're talking to the one who always is, who always was, and who always will be. You don't have to put him on a timetable. You might be on a schedule. You might be on a timetable. But God is not. And he will act for his people. It may seem like he's late. It may seem like he's absent. It may seem like he's not watching or caring or concerned. But God will act when God will act. And when God acts, it is the proper time. It is the proper place. And it is in the proper way. Somebody say amen. And if you run into somebody who can try to explain to you why God acts when he acts, walk away because they don't know what they're talking about. They are a product of time. And this side of eternity, we will never be able to fully enunciate, communicate, and explain why God acts when he acts and why he doesn't act when he doesn't act. Nobody really knows. That's like trying to tell somebody when God's going to return, when Jesus is going to return. No one really knows. But we trust. It says in the next verse, he saw them straining 
at rowing. He saw them. He saw them. You need to understand that God sees. Am I the only one that's ever been in a t- difficult time talking about God? Are you, are you aware of what I'm going through here? Are you aware of the challenges that I'm facing? In our family, I don't use the word stressed or busy because they're pretty windy words to me. And when I use the word stressed, it's not good for my psyche. So I use the word challenged or full. Life is full. This is quite a challenge. But have you ever been in a challenge wondering, God, do you see my challenge? And the reason we question that is because He's not on our schedule. And so we wonder, God, do you see? Oh, yeah, oh, oh, listen to me. If God does anything. Um, if you were really preaching the text, maybe you'd pick up, pick up on the point that we all suffer from hardness of heart. Lack of faith in our gracious God. Oh, you of little faith. Hardness of heart is our problem. He sees. He sees. Bible says, you, he, you, you who sleep, while you sleep, he who neither sleeps nor slumbers, he, he watches over you. Just like a good shepherd, while the sheep are asleep, the shepherd stands at the opening of the corral, if you will, and he watches over his sheep to ensure that no predator sneaks in and takes the sheep. He is the good shepherd who is always aware of your challenges. He's watching. He knows the wind is against you, and he will act on your behalf. Now, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Now, I've got to come back to this. He just said he sees you what you're going through, and he will act on your behalf. I can't promise that Christ is going to act on your behalf the way you want him to in any of the situations that you're facing in your life. May it, either it be a parenting problem, a marital issue, a financial problem, a problem at work, uh, a problem with friends or family, or yeah, name it. I can't promise that Christ is going to act on your behalf in a way that will uh, just, you know, undo the what the, apparently the devil's trying to do to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I can tell you this. Christ has already, already acted on your behalf by dying on the cross for your sins. You see, the real duality set up in Scripture is of a devil who deceives our parents and us as a result, and that has who has plunged us through his deception into slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And Christ redeems us. Christ sets us free from that. Christ dies on the cross to propitiate God's wrath. God, Christ has acted on our behalf by dying and rising again. And he calls us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
of that language. He came to them. That's the whole gospel. He came to them. That's the whole gospel. He came to them. That's the message we preach. He came to them. That is the essence of what we believe. He came to them. He came to me. He came to we. That's what we preach, that God came down from heaven to those of us on earth who were desperate in sin and in need. Grace is not man coming to God. It's God coming to man. God comes to us. I love this God who comes to us when we cannot go to him. And sometimes you'll find yourself in such a challenge, such a test, such a trial. The wind will be so much against you that you will conclude, God, I can't even get to you. I don't even know how to pray this out. I don't even know how to speak this. Lord, I'm, I'm lost. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. I need you. It's in those moments God's grace is sufficient for us, and he will come to you when you can't come to him. He came to them. Walking on the sea. And he acted. He acted like he would pass them by. Bible says in verse 49. It says when they saw him walking on the sea. They supposed it was a ghost. They supposed it was Patrick Swayze. They thought. (laughs) It was a ghost. Just making sure you're awake. And they cried out, Patrick, no. (laughs) Anything could happen. They cried. Have you ever been in a storm so bad you can't even feel Jesus when he shows up? Somebody's up there talking about, man, can you feel the presence? And people are crying around you. God is in the house. And you're like, "I, I don't feel anything. You can't feel that? No, I don't. What is he talking about? What what does Jesus feel like? Am I a, a Jedi that I can feel the presence of my master? I am. I haven't felt this a presence like this since uh, you know. You think of Darth Vader from the first of the Star Wars movies. Um, what? So he's faulting the disciples for not feeling the presence of Jesus when he was walking on the water and instead thinking that it was a ghost. Huh? I can't feel anything. I've been there. And guilt kind of sets in like, look how desensitized you have become. You're going through such a challenge, you can't even feel God. And you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you can't even feel God? You can't even distinguish between a man, a ghost, and God? Wow. I've been there. Everybody around me is crying and worshiping, and I'm like, man, I just don't feel it. And the Bible says that Jesus immediately identified himself. I mean, if I'm Jesus... And I've been hanging out with these boys, his disciples, probably only one of which is over the age of 21, Peter. These are boys. These are boys. And I've been with them. I've worked miracles among them. I have protected them. I have taught them. I have discipled them. And I'm walking by them and they can't even recognize me. Have you ever walked up to somebody like, hey, hey, John, how you doing? But John doesn't remember your name. 
And you, you thought you and John were tight. And John's like, hey, brother. And then we do that mean. It's so mean. Man, you don't remember my name, do you? Sure I do. You're a, you're a child of God. That's, that's what you are. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Shut up, man. You don't even remember my name. You're right. This is kind of bothersome. It's, it's kind of like, really? You can't remember my name. I remember your name. You can't remember my name. Can I give you a hint? It starts with a J. You know. But Jesus is not mad. He's not mad. He's not saying, hello! I am the guy. I'm God. Hello, I'm, you don't even run. I'm Jesus. I'm not Patrick. I'm Jesus. They don't know. They can't. They're just in the, the, the wind, the waves, the storm. They, they, they don't even recognize him. Have you ever been there? Jesus is not mad. He's gracious. He's long-suffering. He's compassionate. So he identifies himself. Thank God for a Jesus that when we can't identify him and when we can't feel him and when we can't discern him, he will reveal himself in spite of our problems, in spite of our inability to know that he is present. He will identify himself to us. But immediately... He talked to them. Love that word. Immediately, immediately. He didn't want them to be troubled. The band can join me. Immediately, immediately, immediately he talked with them and said, be of good cheer. Jesus says, it's me. Don't be afraid. I love those words with one exception. The timing of those words doesn't totally add up to me. Let us consider the context of that statement. When Jesus says, be of good cheer, the wind is still howling. The waves are still crashing. Chaos is still raging. Imagine the scene, if you will. (laughs) Be of good cheer. It's me. Like if Jesus says, be of good cheer, and the wind is still howling, the waves are still raging, chaos is ensuing, I'm going to yell back one question, one word. Why? Be of good cheer. Cue sappy music. Apparently this is to bring the Holy Spirit. Why? This is God's message for you this morning. Your financial storm, your relational storm, your physical storm, your emotional storm, your mental storm. Jesus says, be of good cheer. Why? Nothing's changed. It's all still the same. Some of us are saying, I'll cheer up when the waves stop. I'll cheer up when the wind is gone. I'll cheer up when my bank account finally has something in it, just something. I'll cheer up when my, when my husband stops threatening to divorce me. That's when I'll cheer up. I'll cheer up when my 16-year-old son stops using the word hate in relationship to me and to God and to church. That's when I'll cheer up. 
But Jesus says, be of good cheer. <sighs> what? And he gives us the reason we are to cheer up. He gives us the reason we're to be happy. He gives us the reason we're not to be afraid. He gives us the reason why we're to be at peace in the midst of the chaos, peace in the midst of the storm. He says, because it is me. Jesus says, I'm here. You couldn't distinguish me. You couldn't sense me. You couldn't feel me. So I identified myself. I know you're in the greatest storm of your life and you think like you may not make it and you think your marriage might, might not make it, your business might not make it, your babies might not make it. But Jesus stands and declares unto us today, whoever we are, be of good cheer because it's me. It's me. But God, when is the wind going to stop? We don't know. Nobody really knows. But we can believe. I don't know when the wind is going to stop. I don't know why, why we're still in this fight six years later for our founding pastor, my father. I don't, I don't know when the wind's going to stop. But I know what Jesus said. He said, I want you to cheer up, but God, we're not even to the other side yet. God, the wind is still howling. The waves are still raging. It's still painful. It's still hurtful. It's still challenging. God, I don't understand. But Jesus says, be of good cheer. Why, God? Because I'm here. And I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. I read somewhere in this book, yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Nobody knows how long it takes to get through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't have to put God on a timetable. God is not on my schedule. God is not on your schedule. But yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are here with me. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the source. Jesus is our focus. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our deliverer. No matter what, no matter how long it takes, I will be of good cheer because he is with me. Somebody shout amen in this place. We're going to make it to the other side, church. We're going to go where God told us to go. We're going to be who God called us to be. We're going to see his delivering power. We're going to see his saving power. We're going to see his healing power. Come on, church, from Belltown to Alderwood to North Sound to Plateau to Kirkland. Somebody. What exactly is he yelling about again? I mean, everyone's standing up. I mean, raising their hands and kind of getting whipped up into a frenzy. And I'm sitting there going, huh? Um, what's the good news for me again? Oh, that's right. Jesus is with me in the valley of the shadow of death. If I'm having, you know, problems with parenting and what if I'm not? I mean, what if my life's actually pretty decent right now? Kids are behaving, you know, pretty well. Wife and I are happy. Career is going great. Things in the office are fine. Family's great. No, there's, you know, no one's currently experiencing any major trauma or upset, you know, things are going okay. There, there, there isn't any 
big gusty winds. Apparently Satan has, isn't doing his part to derail my life. Do I need that, Jesus? No, seriously. I mean, if things are pretty much going okay, what do I need Jesus for? In the way he set up this duality, well, if everything's going okay, you don't need Jesus. Because you, apparently you've already, you've already arrived on the other side. Yeah, but see, the biblical Jesus, we all need him because we're all sinners. He died on the cross for our sins. We're not righteous. Not out of ourselves, not at all. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. The biblical problem that the biblical Jesus solves is the sin problem. And in this lifetime, we'll have troubles. Christ will see us through. But it may be that when you're passing through the valley of the shadow of death, that the last step that you take through that shadow, that valley, is the one where you go from being alive physically to being dead physically. And when you step foot on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death, the first step that you'll take and the first breath that you'll take in are not here on this earth, but in the kingdom of God. Shout amen! If God is for us, who can be against us? Come on! He's the Alpha! He's the Omega! He's the beginning! He's the end! He's the faithful one! He's the deliverer! Oh, Jesus, we love you! Makes you wonder if, um, you know, I mean... Would people be standing up and shouting if uh, if there was a power outage and the keyboard wasn't working? Blessing and honor, glory and power be to you and you alone. You're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy. Come on, let's lift our hands in the sanctuary. Let's lift our hands in the house of God. And let's worship the King of Kings. Let's worship the Lord of Lords. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. You see, okay, you're shouting and screaming that you trust the Lord for what? What are you trusting Him for? To get you through your current tough, windy circumstance? My 
By the way, uh, if you go back and read Matthew chapter 6, we read it at the beginning of the sermon review. Jesus talks about these anxieties, what we will eat, what we will drink. And he chastises his hearers and uh, us readers as ones who have little faith. The solution is to seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift by faith. I'm not hearing this. My treasure, Lord, you're my treasure, Lord, my friend and king, anointed one. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, just before we close this service, in a matter of moments, we're going to open up these altars. I'd like to pray with you, stand with you. Maybe this morning the wind is against you. The wind is against your body. Normally, I don't, I don't play through the the prayers when a pastor prays. Usually, that's the end. We're going to keep going through this one because I want you to listen carefully. Because there's going to be an appeal for people to quote become Christians to make a decision for Christ, and it's not repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance of repenting of your sinfulness, confessing that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. Uh, this already work. We're leading into the invitation time in the sermon. With uh, are you? Is the wind against you? Are you? Uh, is your boat being tossed around? I mean, hmm. I mean, that's not repentance. That's uh, we're looking for the genie God who can make the wind stop. The wind is against you. Marriage. The wind is against your emotions. Your mind. Even though the wind is against you, your God is for you. I just want to ask you one simple question. I just feel such a presence of God in this place. My question is this, friend. Are you forgiven? Do you know God? For what? Forgiven for what? You haven't preached sin and grace. You haven't preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So here we are, 43 minutes into the sermon. We're, we're just a couple minutes left to go. And he asked the question, are you forgiven? And immediately, my, I mean, if I was showing up at this church for the very first time, you'll say somebody invited me there and I wasn't a, a Christian. My question, forgiven? Huh? Forgiven for what? For, forgiven from having the wind blowing it at me? You know, for being put in the boat. I mean, at this point, uh, everything he's preached is a theology of victimhood. You're victims of Satan's plan to destroy your life. Forgiveness implies that I've done something wrong, that I need to be forgiven, that I'm a perpetrator, not a victim, but a perp. I'm the one committing the crime. I'm the one needing to be forgiven. So he's asking, are you forgiven? Well, huh? I don't have any context in the sermon to understand even what the question is asking. God, do you have a relationship with the Creator? There's only one way to have a relationship with God, and that's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, 
and I am the life. Nobody gets to Father God except through me. If we're to be forgiven, if we're to be saved, we must put our faith in Jesus, God's Son, who died on the cross, paid the, paid the penalty that we deserved. He paid so that we could know God. I agree. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. Completely get it. But based upon the sermon, I don't understand what it is that you're getting at. I, I need to have a relationship with God? What for? I, I, you know, the non-believer might go, I, I have a relationship with God. It's not a good one, but I have one. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of an on-again, off-again kind of thing, you know. What are you talking about? Forgiven for what? What have I done wrong? Why, huh? We could be made right with God. We could be friends with God. If you're here and you say, Jude, I want to be forgiven. I want to be made right with God. I want a relationship with my creator. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand all over the city at all of our campuses. You know who you are. God is speaking to you. Believers are praying right now. You know who you are. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. One. Come on. Two, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Salvation from what? Based on the context of the sermon, uh, salvation from my bad, windy circumstances. Receive forgiveness that only Jesus offers. Three, I just want you to slip up your hand. Just slip it up. Put it right back down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just slip it up. Thank you. Everybody else, thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Just slip it up and you can put it right back down so I know who I'm praying for. Thank you. His presence is in this place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, church. Let's all pray this prayer together. The Bible says if we believe in our heart, confess with our mouth, we'll be forgiven. Come on. Say, Jesus, I need you. I believe in you. Here's my life. I give it to you. Thank you for forgiving me. Isn't that backwards? I mean, seriously. Here's my life. I give it to you. What what does God want our life for? Isn't the gospel that Christ gave his his life for us? I have nothing to offer God. Nothing. This is all backwards. Thank you for giving me a new start. I love you. And I will follow you from this day forward. I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that commitment today, maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you made that commitment from your heart. Right in front of you is a very important card in our community. It's called a Connect card. If you made that commitment from your heart, then you are a Christian. And what happens, uh, you know, next week when I'm struggling with my sinful nature? And it's obvious I haven't really made meant that commitment. I didn't really mean it with my whole heart. Am I saved or am I damned? So here's the problem with Pelagianism. This is one of the reasons why it's a heresy. Is it basically has you chasing your own decisional tail? to tell whether or not you really meant it sincerely enough when you 
raised your hand and prayed the prayer if as to whether or not you are saved. Yep. You don't have to do life alone. This relationship with God is to be played out and walked out in a community known as the church. Would you fill out your name and information just privately on your way out, hand it to our hosts at all of our campuses. Somebody will call you, pray with you, stand with you in the next few days. Answer any questions you might have. Maybe you're a believer, but you have you need some prayer and want somebody to pray with you. Fill out this card before you leave. Lastly, as we close this service, I want to open up the altars right now at all of our campuses. If pastors and leaders could come, just stand with me. Make ourselves available. If the wind is against you in any area of your life, I want to pray for you. If you have the time today, we want to pray with you. We want to stand with you. The wind may be against you, but as I said, God is for you. We're going to get to the other side of this storm. We're going to get to the other side of this challenge. And in the meantime, we're going to have peace. We're going to be of good cheer because he is with us. Can I hear an amen? God bless you, church. I believe our best days are ahead of us. We're going to go right into worship, and these altars are open. Have a blessed day. Have a blessed day. So, um, yeah, um, yeah, I'm not hearing biblical repentance and forgiveness of sins. I'm hearing decisional theology based upon us being victimized by Satan who wants to mess up our lives, you know, and to blow his windy words our ways to mess everything up. Yeah, and that, and this from the guy that Stephen Furtick says is the LeBron James of, uh, of preaching. LeBron? I don't think so. I, I don't even think this guy plays single-A ball on the high school level at this point. Yeah, he, he's he got a good presentation, and he's got the really cool hipster haircut going on, but I'm not hearing sound biblical theology, nor am I hearing God's Word handled properly. LeBron James? No. No. More like a white guy who can't jump. Yeah. That's what it looked like to me. What'd you think? Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to email me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Sins, yes, you are a sinner. You're a perp. You need to be forgiven by Christ. Good news, he died for you. Amen. <laughs>